0: Ancient Christian philosophers described the thing that makes us human. Like, that was a big thing. Like, what is it that, this is sort of like the job of philosophy, right, to think about. What is it that makes us what we are? Um, and they all sort of assumed, until the modern age, that we're more than just like flesh and bone. This is sort of a, a new a new thought in, in the history of of, of human civilization to think that um, all I am is like what I think or all I am is just this, this body and I'm a shell and I'm gonna go into the ground. And even though there were ancient atheists, there still had this sense of the soul. And so they describe what makes us human as, as three things. Uh, truth, goodness, and beauty. Truth, goodness, and beauty. That what makes us human is that we all hunger for truth We all have this kind of ache to see goodness, and we all are captivated by beauty. One of the things that I think Christians have done in the modern age, reacting against perhaps uh, the rationalism of the enlightenment, perhaps against this sort of idea that we're just flesh and blood, that we have to counter or encounter people who don't have faith with Truth. And so we bring them apologetics, we bring them facts. Let me tell you about the, the transmission of the Bible and how many manuscripts we have and lay that against the other ancient manuscripts and look at how the Bible stacks up. And we give these people, like we spew these facts against, against people. But you know what? Facts don't really win people. Not really. We know this from studying the human mind that facts don't generally win people. And we find ourselves often um, focused on goodness. I mean, look at our, our fights against abortion. Look against the Christians who are protesting um, you know, gay marriage or, or all these different things. We, we're sort of countering the world and saying, well, look at these things that you're doing. And we say that these are against the Bible. And so let me hit you in the head with, like, the goodness of the Bible. This is what you're doing, and it's wrong. You better stop. That almost never wins anyone. So, I think that we've neglected beauty. I was 16 when I uh, decided to follow Jesus, like really decided. I was seven when I was baptized, but what does a seven-year-old know about puberty, right? Um, And I remember uh, very well the day, I was asking Laura because I I didn't think I'd ever shared this before, We probably won't put this up online, but I remember the day uh, because I decided that either I was done with life or God had to do something. I remember saying that prayer. And it was the next day, because I I was raised in church, so, I mean, I knew all the answers, right? God, Jesus, the Bible, we're all set. I answered all your Sunday school questions. Uh, But for various reasons, uh, that didn't stick. Uh, I remember the next day I ran into the stories of Saint Francis of Assisi, and they're beautiful. He read this line where Jesus said to his disciples, or he said to the to the to the man, the rich young ruler, he said, "Sell everything and follow me." This is a story of Saint Francis, and uh, he couldn't read, <laughs> like the dude couldn't read, and he's in church and he hears this guy. Read this text, sell everything you have and follow me. And he was a very wealthy, a son of a very wealthy merchant. And he said, you know what, I, I wanna know this God. And he um, sold everything and, and followed him. And the story's more complicated than all that, but I was like, that's, a, that's real, like, that's, that's beautiful. It was beauty that saved me, it was beauty that saved me. Not all the facts I learned in Sony School, not all of the moralizing that we often do, but it was beauty and it 's beauty that 's kept me because I have all the facts in my head, but the facts i not i don 't know if any of you have ever doubted your faith i have, and um, I can quote you facts like like no tomorrow right uh, and yet when when you're in the middle of doubt, all that facts doesn't seem to matter. But it's Jesus. Jesus that I can't shake. And what I want to communicate to you today, if, if anything at all, if you take anything at all away from this, is the beauty of the story of Revelation. Like just to stop in awe of the grandeur of it. And to see how God is is revealing something that your soul, and I believe this, every soul, every person hungers for this. We have different names, we have different avenues, we have different things, but it's all the same, all the same hunger. To see the world transformed, see ourselves changed. Uh, the scriptures sort of outline a story, and if you broke it down, It might look something like this to the Bible. And the Bible is, for all of the things that we can sort of talk about, all the different genres and all the different laws and rules and all these sorts of things, the Bible is one grand story. And if you broke it down, you would see the collapse of creation, you would see how evil enters the world that answers the question of why is everything so broken? You ever wondered, why is everything so broken? Why am I, and in fact, I, most of the time I just wonder, why am I so broken? And, and Genesis answers that question. And then God steps in and he calls Abraham, he calls Israel, he brings them out to be a light to the nations. And, and then Jesus comes and he is the light of God. And then he calls together people, he calls them church, calls them the gathering. Literally, the word church just means gathered gathered people, and he sends them out to be the light that Jesus was, and then you come to this climactic conclusion that's hinted out from the very beginning pages of Genesis through Abraham and Moses and the prophets, through Jesus and the apostles' teaching, to finally we have this revelation in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, where we see, not all of it, but enough that the beauty can capture you. And so I want to read, um, I want to read this text. I'm just gonna read it all, and then we'll kind of go through back through it. But it's Revelation chapter twenty one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he, he will wipe away every tear from their eye." And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, look, see, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done, I am the Alpha. I am the omega, I am the beginning, I am the end. And to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And to the one who conquers, I will give this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my child. But as for the cowardly, and the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers and sexually immoral and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. This is the second death. I like the word new. Ladies, do you like the word new? It's a proven fact that uh, when you purchase something, you get an endorphin rush. This is why when Laura buys new shoes, she's so excited. And she comes home and she says, look at all the things that I buy. And honestly, I couldn't care less, like really couldn't. She knows this, we know this, this is our, so we're very honest in our marriage. She knows I couldn't couldn't care less, but she has to show me these new things. And so she, you want to see what what I got? And I'm like, yeah, I'm desperate to see what you got. (laughs) Couldn't live without it, show me. And she knows that I'm not really honest in this moment, but that's the kind of deeper honesty that happens in marriage, right? If you've been married a while, you know what I'm talking about. And she shows me these things and she's so excited about the new. And yet, I know, because I've been excited about new shoes maybe once in my life. I don't remember when, but I'm sure I was. You know, after a few weeks, the new sort of wears off, doesn't it? Just sort of, then it's old again. This is a wonderful thing, and I, I, I know that some of you here today might, may not be Christians, and so I, I'm sort of speaking to Christians now for a second, um, and, and this might not speak to you, but as a Christian, the incredible thing about my life, as I've walked with Jesus... Um, over the years, is that I remember I remember my baptism, and I remember uh, him making me new at seven years old, and I remember various times over my life where he has made me new again and again and again. Sometimes within the same week, sometimes like the next day, it's like I'm new again, and I don't I don't have a word like I, I can't ex- I can't express it, like I don't have any sort of way of expressing. But if those of you who are Christian, you know what I'm talking about. Like, like it's new, and I'm excited, and you know the thing that I think the world is sort of hungry for it's for people who are new. I think it's hungry for people who believe and not just say they believe, not just come to church on Sunday morning, but they believe like from their tips of their toes to the top of their hair. Like every day they have a white hot faith because God is alive to them. And I think that's what the world sees because the scriptures say over and over again that the world is being made new, that there's newness that's happening. And yet the old age is passing away, that there is two tracks of reality that are, that are intertwined and sort of happening at the same time. That is that God's children are being restored every single day, being made new by the power of the Spirit. And the world is just dying. And as it gets darker, and as it dies, and as all of our friends and neighbors who don't know Jesus see that and experience that, they should see you and say, that's life, and I want that. I think that's beauty. I think that's the only way that we will really change people is if they see in you newness of life and that's what this whole text is about you remember last week uh, the earth was stripped away the sky was stripped away and all there was was us and god but the next scene is so lovely isn't it what's the next scene the earth under our feet is restored and the sky above our head is restored. And I think this is a really important point, and I I might harp on it for a second. Um, And that is, we persist in using this word heaven. And we use it 99% of the time inappropriately. The word heaven is a Greek word that means sky. When you look up, what do you see? Heaven. That's what you see, heaven. Heaven. The other time that the word heaven is used is as a circumlocution, which is to say people were afraid of taking God's name in vain, and so they didn't say the word God. And so how do you say God without saying God? Heaven, right? So sometimes we read the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and sometimes we read the kingdom of God is at hand, and they're talking about exactly the same thing. Matthew was a very good Jew, and he didn't like using the word God, and so he went around it. The kingdom of heaven, that is God's restoring the earth, God's restoring the sky. We uh, notice Jesus says, when he teaches us how to pray, do you remember our Father? That's good, that's enough. Stop right there. I forgot, I was was leading the choir. What's the sign for like, stop it? Stop it. There you go. Okay, good. I don't know anything about choirs. Like, this is not my thing. Your kingdom come. You notice that? Not, 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 hey, uh, um, take my soul when I die. Not, let me fly up to glory. Not, uh, let my soul be with you. Your kingdom come. Not me go there. Your kingdom come. And what do we see? This vision here. It is a new, lush, gorgeous, it is, it's a new Eden. Because when you look out there at the plants and the trees and the sky and the fields and, um, well, not so much that because there's snow on it, but when we get spring finally in Michigan, you'll look out there and if you've read Genesis at all, you will say, that is good. Because when God looked at the earth after he made it, what did he say? It's good. It's good. And so God's plan from Genesis chapter one through three all the way through to Revelation as we see now is to take the earth that we have scarred with our pollution. That we have poured upon the dirt, the blood of the innocent. That we have neglected and abused and ruined with our wars and rumors of wars. It's removed. And in its place is new. When we look at the sky, I don't know if you've ever been to Chicago or New York or any of these places, but you don't want to look at the sky, do you? Because there's no newness there. There's smog there. You see it, like, coming in. I remember the first time I saw, I went to Chicago, and I was like, man, what is up over there? It's like a brown poop color all over the top of the thing like what what is that the sky is new you breathe in and it's pure our hunger is for a new heaven new sky a new earth a new body a world that is ruled in righteousness and goodness, that the new ethic that we saw in Jesus of love and mercy and peace and meekness and humility and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness is the characteristic of every single inhabitant of that kingdom. That is the good news. And that's amazing news, isn't it? It's beautiful. Just imagine for a second. You step out in a body that doesn't get sick, that doesn't get old, that doesn't hurt, you know that no one will scar your emotions, that no one will say an unkind word, that from now on, faithfulness, justice, goodness, mercy, peace, humility, and love is going to be the characteristic of every single person that you meet. Imagine. There's an interesting line here It says uh, something is missing. What's missing in the text? We have a new sky and we have a new earth, but something's missing. What's missing? You have Bibles in your hands. Like, I'm not, I don't have it on my face. What is it? The sea. The sea is missing. Why is the sea missing? That's like an important question. You ever, everybody been to the ocean? Something weird is going on here. You ever been to the ocean? I was in the, I was, uh, we'd go to the ocean um, when we lived in Tennessee, um, because an ant that had a free place for us to stay. So we would go to the ocean. And uh, I remember one day I was out in the ocean. Because I love, I love the ocean. And I was standing out there, maybe like waist deep. And it was, it was kind of like a, a really windy, sort of blustery day. But you're only at the ocean for a week once a year. So you got to go out, right? Uh, and we're out in it. And man, this wave came. And it just, boom! It just laid me. I mean, my face went into the dirt. And... I mean, I just like flat on the, on the ground, uh, underneath, you know. I mean, not a ton of water, but enough that I'm under it. And I could feel my feet just get ripped out from under me, and it's dragging, just dragging me straight out. You ever been there? You ever had that happen? Oh, man. I mean, I was, I've, I've been terrified only a few times in my life, but I was terrified. And I'm clawing at the ground, and I, I mean, I, I get up. in the ancient world, this is an image of chaos, I mean, even on a really calm day, is the waters ever not moving? Are they ever not lapping against the shore? Are they ever not seeking entropy to pull away the sand? Right? The ocean is chaos, it is clamor, it is destruction, it is death in the ancient world. And so what is being said here is not God never learned how to swim and so he removed it so that no one would drown or something like that. Like, that's not what's going on here. What it's saying is this image that you all know is destruction and death and chaos, whatever it is that is in your life that has knocked you flat and trying to drag you out, whether it is sickness or it's depression or it's a childhood that you can't shake or it's a memory that you can't forget or it's guilt. That you can't let go of, whatever it is that has slammed you, put you face down in the dirt, and is ripping you out to see that is gone. It's gone. And in its missing place is fields of green. What an image that God is trying to share with us here. This this beautiful image that He is trying to, to capture. And then we see the new Jerusalem. We're gonna go over this next week, so I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this, but this new Jerusalem, this capital city, this place where God will rule over all things comes out of the sky to a light upon earth. The kingdom, the kingdom has finally come. This thing that the children of God have been praying for even before the church because this is what the Israelites were told to pray for too. The kingdom of God, the dreams of the prophets have now come to their final completion, they've finally come to the final act. I'll move on. No, I wanted that. Sorry, I hit it again. And what's interesting next is this imagery that God is now dwelling in the midst of them. Now, I want to I sort of walk through the Bible for a second because I think we would read this and think that this is really excellent. But what I want you to read as you read this is that this is the hunger of God from Genesis to Revelation. In Genesis, we have this image of God walking in the garden like he walked with Adam and Eve, just saw them face to face, walked with them. But in their sin, they corrupted and broke the fellowship, for God cannot have fellowship. What what does light have fellowship with in darkness, right? They don't have, they can't coexist, they can't be together. So as we continue to walk in darkness, we continue to, to separate ourselves from the fellowship that God wanted when he created the world. And so God seeks a solution, because his desire is to dwell in the midst of his people. And so he builds, or he commands them to build, a tabernacle, which is... A temple, only a, the tent version of it. And they build this tent. And, and God says throughout um, uh, in Exodus and in different places, I want to dwell in the midst of them. And that's the purpose of this whole thing, that I could come down and I can dwell. And yet the midst of that is within a room, within a room, within another big room. And between all of these giant, thick, inches thick curtains. That God's dwelling in the midst of his people, but they don't see him. They can't. All they can get is a word from the priest, but God's desire is to dwell in the midst of them, and so he sends Jesus. It's interesting, um, John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. That word dwelt, if you're looking at your text here, is the exact same Greek word when it says, um, my dwelling place, or the dwelling place, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, that dwelling place is the exact same word, that uh Jesus came and literally the word we translate would be tented. He tabernacled with us. That the walls that were keeping God from the people of Israel now have been shrank down so that now it's just flesh. Jesus, between us and meeting God. But even that is not enough because God's desire is to dwell in the midst of his people. And here we have this vision where everything has been restored. You've been restored. The earth's been restored. The sky's been restored. The capital city, the new Jerusalem has come out of the sky. And now God is going to dwell in the midst of his people. And there's no longer anything between us. You will see God face to face. And I think sometimes we imagine that as being a terrifying thought. I do. Because I'm a pretty wretched dude. And the idea of standing in front of God is terrifying. What do the scriptures say? What happens when God dwells in our midst? I love this intimate thing. He wipes away the tears from our eyes. Because those of you who are Christians here today, and those of you who are, all of us are carrying brokenness, Right? We're all carrying pain. You know the grace of God. You know the love of Jesus. And yet somehow all of us who have this revelation still carry so much weight. And it says here that God wipes away the tears. And I can't, as a parent, not think of uh, Emery, you know, as a, as a little baby. Even today, just, you know, she falls and hurts herself. And she's getting bigger She's getting really hard to carry. (laughs) And yet when she falls and the tears fall with them, she comes to daddy, she comes to mommy, and we pick her up and we wipe away the tears. That is God's will for you. That is what God wants. When we read you could be the children, what what was that, verse, uh, um, the one who, verse seven, the one who conquers, will have this heritage. What's the heritage? The heritage is I will be his God and he will be or she will be my son or daughter. You want heritage? And there's something that we're all looking for, aren't we? We're all after something. We're after uh, money or position or maybe you're looking, maybe it's all about having a great family or maybe it's all about having a great vacation or maybe it's all about having a great job. I don't know, whatever it is that you are seeking after, could anything compare with God saying, son when he looks at you or daughter when he looks at you and that's that's the burning heart of god and i think that's really important to point out because at the end of all of this beauty what do we have verse eight but for the cowardly the faithless the detestable the murderers the sexually immoral the sorcerers the idolaters the liars their portion will be the lake of fire that burns with sulfur which is the second death wow thanks for bringing us down god like we had all this wonderful and joy and here you go have to, to, to prove to us that you are a God of judgment. You are a God of wrath. You aren't really a God of love and that all of this has been about me, all about, this has all been about you looking at us and saying, you're not good enough and I just can't wait to judge you. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you grow up thinking God is disappointed in you? God is. Looks at you and he sees sinner. He looks at you and says, "I don't really want this person for all eternity." Sometimes we read these lists and that's what we think God is all about. But that's nothing could be further from the truth. What's being set down here is a message of clarity. We have beauty, but beauty isn't enough. We also need truth, and we also need goodness, because not only does God love, not only is God beauty, but God is also, through Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. He is also good, and if we wish to enter into the beauty, then we must understand that truth and goodness go with them. And so what God is doing is trying to say to you, listen, and what's interesting about the whole last two chapters of of Revelation is he gives us all of this wonderful imagery, this beauty, and then he gives this sort of list of don'ts, you know, the murders, the sexual immorality, all this stuff. And he does it not to sort of steal the beauty, but to clarify it. Because nothing could be more clear than light and darkness, and the two don't go together. And what God is trying to do is, he's trying to say, look at all that I have in store for those who are my children. Look at all that I have to give you. Look at all that I'm going to do, and I want you to be a part of it. And I want you to see that gorgeous, beautiful life. And now I'm going to set against it all the darkness in the world that you see so that you can see the stark contrast between a child of God and a child of the devil. Not because I want to judge the children of the devil. In fact, who is Revelation written to? The church, right? It's not written to the world. It's written to you. All y'all. It's to you. To say to you, look at what God has in mind and set that against what we see in the world and choose light rather than darkness, choose beauty rather than ugliness. Such an important thing, such an important thing. I'm running shy on some time, and so um, I want to end with this. I like verse six, if you look at verse six with me. I mean, I like it all, but I like verse six. He says to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Um. That's taken from Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55 says this. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you all spend your money your time, your life. For that which is not bread, why do you work so very, very hard for those things that don't satisfy you? Listen to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in the richness of my food. Seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him when he is near so that the wicked would forsake their ways, the unrighteous man, his unrighteous thoughts, and let them all return to the Lord that he may have compassion on them. And to our God who will abundantly pardon, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. You may think I don't love you. You may think you're not worthy. You may have been even told that you're good for nothing. You're a sinner. You're Undesirable. But my ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth below them, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts from your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to the earth, making it bring forth its fruit and sprout, giving seed to the sower giving bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you, for you, for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And the mountains and the hills before you, the mountains and the hills will sing. And the trees of the fields will clap their hands. And instead of thorns shall come forth the cypress. And instead of the briar shall come forth the flowers. And it shall make a name for the Lord. An everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And this is the will of God for every man, woman, child, plant, stream, all of God's will is to see all of creation swallowed up in newness and wholeness and I don't know what brokenness you have brought with you I don't know what brokenness you have in you I don't know what people have said to you about God but listen to the message of scripture Because the message of scripture is this. God wants to renew you. He wants to be in your midst. He wants to see you face to face so that he as the creator of both heaven and earth can see your pain and wipe your tears away. That's the message of scripture. And that's the vision of the church. That's the vision that the world should see as it sees us for by grace you have been saved. you hear that? For by grace you have been saved. Did you hear that? For by, what was it again? I forgot. Grace you have been saved, not because you were great, not because you were worthy, not because you did something really wonderful, but because God chose you. Because God loved you. Because God sent his son to die for you. Because God is creating a kingdom. He is making a world and he says, I want you Forever. Forever. I sing a song, and uh, we call this an invitation time, a time when if you need to respond to the good news of Jesus, to the beauty that you see in the world, whether it's coming forward because you need somebody to pray with you, coming forward because you need to accept Jesus, coming forward because you need to be baptized, coming forward just because you're broken and you need a hug, we invite you to